This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing games and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, January 23rd of 2020, it's episode 170. In this episode, Kimmy from Happy Jacks rejoins us to talk about pregame tools, plus our favorite things to cook, Saving the Game on Spotify, the surprisingly non-mystical history of the tarot deck, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And I'm Kimmy. And we have Kimmy from Golden Lasso Games and the Happy Jacks podcast back on the mics with us. And that is awesome. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. Uh, The last time we had you on was episode 103 when we were talking about uh, fitness for gamers, Mm -hmm. which was ended up being a huge two part episode that was really good. (laughs) So, thank you. No it's problem. good to have you back. At the time, it was the largest episode we'd ever done. We've surpassed it by one person since then. But yeah, I think that's was... right. Yeah. Got to keep pushing the boundaries. Exactly. <laughs> so, Kimmy, uh, let's take a moment and let you introduce yourself and Golden Lasso Games and everything else. All right. Well, I have been affiliated with the Happy Jacks RPG Network for a while. Um, we've recently broken into streaming as well as podcasting, which is very exciting. Uh, I'm one of the managers over there at that network. We have about 25 to 30 people uh, that we uh, wrangle, I guess is the best term. <laughs> the best term. Uh, cat herding also comes to mind <laughs> into uh, three to four actual plays a week. And then on Fridays, we still have our advice show every Friday. So it's a lot of fun. Um, And in the last two years, I've suddenly decided that I wanted to write games as well as play games all the time. So I started Golden Lasso Games. And you can find that at goldenlassogames.com. And my first game that I actually released was called Virgins and Vixens, which isn't quite what it sounds like, but it's mostly about playing with the tropes of women in fairy tales, like the damsel in distress princess who can't take care of herself um, mm-hmm. and kind of breaking out of that trope. And the, the, you know, the evil witch who, you know, is evil because she's ugly and because she like knows magic and like, like breaking out of these one um, dimensional female characters, which are prevalent in all um, lore throughout the world and kind of making them more complex. Um, and then I've also worked on a game called Decima, which we're going to be talking about a lot today. That's right. So let's talk about Decima for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're timing this episode surprisingly well because you've got a Kickstarter coming up. I do. I launched two days ago, in fact. Um, yes. So as I'm, of when you're hearing the episode, yes. just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just to be clear. Um, and yeah, we launched on February 2nd at 2 p.m. because I could not do it on 02022020. Um, so, uh, yeah, so hopefully at this point we've got a bunch of money in there. Fingers crossed. Here's hoping. So, uh, just take, I mean, we're going to be talking about Decima a lot, but give us just the elevator pitch on it real quick. So Decima is the R and D for your RPG is kind of what we've, we've dubbed it. Um, it's a very quick card game that you can play in about, 60 to 90 minutes. It can sometimes take a little longer if you have very verbose players, if you want to add some extra rounds to it. But what it does is it prepares you and your players for your campaign. So instead of, oh, we meet in a tavern and I don't know if I trust that dwarf, um, you can come to the table with character concepts or 
completely fleshed out character sheets if you want. Um, and it will create character connections. So a little bit of backstory between how the characters already know each other. It will also help create a location. So you end up actually with a map that everyone can kind of reference um, and everyone knows what's in whatever your location is. We've done it with um, generation ships flying through space. We've done it with fantasy kingdoms, you know, wild west towns. Uh, we actually did a haunted house one time. So the whole location was that we created was one house. Um, oh, that's cool. It's very <laughs> cool. Yeah. And uh, it's very flexible, too. It also creates NPCs for you. Um, and also just cult cultural aspects of the location. Um, like, uh, what is a word that we say in our location when something goes well? Uh, so, like, all these little things. So it's like, oh, okay, in, like, modern, you know, jargon, we say, oh, that's cool. Or that's great. So what's a word that in this place they say? So you get to kind of think of a location from as more than a map. It's like an actual place with a culture and kind of society of its own. And then the last thing that it creates is group dynamics and politics. So a lot of times we spend effort putting connections between our PC characters, but also as a group, like that character has some history too. So it's what do people think of our group? Do we have a good reputation? Do we have a bad reputation? Who supports us? Like maybe someone has paid us money in the past. Maybe, you know, somebody owes us money. Who is that person? So it helps create all these dynamics that the players can reference when they're role playing, but then also the GM can use as all these different threads that they can follow for the stories in their campaign. Yep, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm all about this. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, Decima and really kind of pregame tools in general uh, as our main topic tonight. Before we get into that, though, I have two things. First, um, where can people find you on the internet? The easiest place to find me is goldenlassogames.com. Um, or if you're on social media, I am at Golden Lasso Girl on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everywhere. <laughs> uh, and then the second thing is a super quick note that probably doesn't matter to anyone actually listening to this podcast because you've already found it. Uh, but maybe you're here and uh, via Kimmy and you want to subscribe to our show. We are now on Spotify as of like last week. Four days so, ago or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Right. Exciting. I finally pulled the trigger on that one. So that's the thing. Yeah. So you can now subscribe to us on Spotify if that's your thing. There we awesome. go. All right. We have a Patreon question to do. And as always, this is rolled randomly. Uh, on our table of questions that our Patreon supporters send us. So here we go. And Kimmy, you are welcome and encouraged to participate. Okay. Oh, okay. So this one actually is uh, pretty great and kind of follows up with a question we had just a little bit ago. Uh, give me just a sec. <clears throat> David Hastings asks, what is your favorite thing to cook? Oh, boy. We're going to be trapped all night. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Um <laughs> I admit I don't do a lot of cooking. Honestly, I just kind of do some grilling mostly. Chrissy, Chrissy enjoys cooking and has always enjoyed cooking, so she usually chases me out of the kitchen when <laughs> I try. I uh, I like to do the kind of improvisational cooking where you see what you've got in your freezer and pantry and make something tasty out of that. Hmm. I, I learned to do that at a relatively young age. My folks are both pretty good cooks, and... I just picked it up from them and I don't do it very often because my wife works from home and we like to eat about the time I get home. So she's usually got dinner ready by the time I get back. So 
it's it's a rare thing like on vacations or in the you know occasional weekend or something i'll i'll cook but i like kind of that what can i do with what i've got here aspect yeah which i've always been envious of because i don't have that sense of like flavor and how foods go together unfortunately i do (laughs) and i hate cooking (laughs) i i am actually really really good at being like this spice goes with this thing these things will all go well together. I hate who I become in the kitchen. <laughs> I become like the a tyrant. I hate cooking because I can feel myself becoming the worst version of myself. Uh. <laughs> Jenny instantly turns into Gordon Ramsay as soon as you hand her a spatula. Ooh. Worst. <laughs> like I, I would just rather people not ask me to cook. Mm-hmm. I am least t- tyrannical when I'm cooking chili, which sort of gets back into the whole chili <laughs> discussion we got into last oh, time. No. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's why I was thinking about that. So, yeah, I've got really big opinions on chili, and, like, yeah, and it's, it's just one of those things, because, like... People are like, oh, you're so skilled in this one area. You should hone that to perfection. And I'm like, I'd really rather not. I don't want to. I want to be left alone. (laughs) Fair. Fair. Uh, I think my favorite thing to cook, I'm a big breakfast cooker. Mm, Um, My husband likes doing like dinners and stuff because like you were saying, he's got like the whole grill thing happening. Um, But yeah, I just love like getting up on, you know, a weekend and making a bunch of pancakes. I I love pancakes so much. You know, that is fun. And I do do that for the family, but it's not like my favorite thing. No. Yeah. I I think just because. Uh, I'm a teacher, so my mornings are really rushed and really mm. early for most mm. of the week. So it's like finally like Saturday and Sunday. It's just like a little bit of time to just kind of like do that for the family, like really kind of have that that kind of moment. And it's it's sort of like a communal thing where we all get together and like do little different parts of it, which I love, too. Mm. So I don't know if that's cheating a little bit because it's not necessarily me doing all the cooking, but I just love that feel, that that food community feel is my favorite yeah. thing. Okay. Well, there we go. Uh, great question. Thank you very much, David. We really appreciate that. And uh, if anyone else wants to send questions in or support us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash saving the game. We're right there. And for as little as a dollar a month, you get show outlines, you get to ask questions, you get special colors in, the disc- in our Discord, you get all sorts of wonderful things, and uh, you guys help keep us on the air and we really appreciate it it's amazing so thank you thank you so much all right we've got some scripture to read to go along with our topic tonight and then we're going to get right into a discussion of these pre-game tools so so this is genesis chapter one verses one and two in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters proverbs chapter 15 Verse 22. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. And we have Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So our main topic tonight is these pre-game tools that we mentioned just a little bit ago and that Kimmy was kind enough to describe when talking about Decima. So there's a lot of these pre-game tools out there. Not as many as there are, you know, Actually, games. Actually, you know but what? There really aren't. I, I was looking, it's a small field. Um, really? I always felt like it's bigger than, but maybe that's... No, just, it's like, it's Microscope, Kingdom, Downfall, The Quiet Year, and Decima when it comes yeah. out, basically. Huh. Well, There's and, not and also, a lot. When, you, when you think about Microscope and The Quiet Year specifically, um, those are actually meant to be played as standalone narrative games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They can kind of be hacked to be used as pregame tools, but that's not their actual design function. Yeah, downfall too. Yeah. Hmm, so okay. Well, see, that's interesting because I've always been under the impression there are a bunch of these out there, but I may be confusing like what people use to plan their games and their pregame stuff with actual products mm-hmm. that are out there. Yeah, that might like, be what I'm seeing. Yeah, there aren't a whole heck of a lot of products. It's more along the lines of like massive tomes of advice, mm-hmm. right? Like virtual or in some cases physical but it's, yeah, it's I mean I I own a yeah. couple of those yes yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean there's there's sites like World Anvil that'll give you a bunch of writing prompts and stuff but it's mm-hmm. yeah oh it, sure there these kind of products are actually pretty thin on the ground that's it's interesting sort of exciting that there's another one being made quite frankly yeah well there is so so let's talk about these there obviously there is some market for these things and I kind of want, want to introduce the concept because I have never personally had a need for them, but I've always been sort of fascinated with the idea of them. Uh, I own a copy of Microscope, and uh, Kimmy was kind enough to send us an early beta copy of the Decima rules so we could look at it and have some some things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And they look really cool, and I really want to try them. So uh, let me throw this to you, Kimmy. What kind of situations do you find yourself designing Decima for? Well, my friends and I fell in love with playing Powered by the Apocalypse games, um, which has kind of been a big fad in the last however many years. Um, And one of the great things that Powered by the Apocalypse games have in them is these character connection questions. Um, And it kind of varies. Some of them have like two for each playbook. Some of them have um, like a bunch. I found that it really enriched the play experience because you stepped into the game with already having these relationships with the other PCs. And it it just, you were able to hit the ground running in a way that didn't happen in other games. Even if you say, oh, we've all known each other for years, if you don't take the time to kind of flesh that out a little bit, Mm -hmm. that's a hard thing to role play. Um, So it's like, okay, we know each other from the army. Okay, great, that's fine. But the, the PBTA questions are very specific. So it's like, one time you saved so-and-so's life, how did it happen? So even if it's one, only one or two memories that you have as this character now, that's with everyone at the table. So suddenly you have this very rich kind of web between all of you that is can be used to support the rest of the story and inform your role-playing from the very beginning. So I, I, I love that aspect of it. Yeah, same, yeah. They're great. Yeah. And so the, the goal here is to then make something system agnostic that you can take to any game. Exactly. Um, I, I GM a whole bunch. And I was finding myself, like we were saying a few minutes ago with The Quiet Year, which is a game that I adore. Um, you know, I was pulling, Okay, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to be running a Wild Talents game. I'll pull these questions from this PBTA 
um, hack and I'll pull these things from a quiet year and I'll grab this from whatever else microscope. So I was I, like, <laughs> it's like a buffet of tools that I was trying to put together myself. You know what else? And, just while we're on this real quick, you know what yeah. else really Decima reminded me of is the leading hmm. questions in dread. Mm-hmm. Oh, Okay. I, I, ha- I don't have experience with that, so I, I will look into that. That's yeah, exciting. So the, the thing about Dread is they the character creation is just 10 questions because the, the mechanic is, of course, you know, pulling Jenga t- uh, bricks out of a stack of Jenga tiles. It's not yeah. like you're rolling dice. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to create statistics. So it's just who is your character and what, what would they do? And the questions are things like, why do you hate your job? Yeah. So it's a leading question that gives the person you're handing the question to lots of room to respond. Yeah, I adore uh, that. Yeah, and so the questions that you've written seem to have some of that same leading tone. And in fact, it's it's kind of explicit rather than implicit in the questions. You're, you're saying, here's a thing that happened, tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. or it's a, an assumption about a character or an aspect of the place. Yeah, it, it starts with an assumption. Yeah, it it starts with an assumption and then lets you go from there. Yeah, and I love that. That's that's really cool. One thing I do want to uh, point out, and this is a bit of a digression here, well, Decima and hey, go ahead. maybe we should let her kind of finish what she was talking about. Oh yes, yes. Before. Sorry, go ahead. Let's jump back to that. <laughs> uh, I so I, I got lost in what you were saying. What what was your original question? You, you, to were, me? you were talking kind of about the origins of this. So oh, yeah, so it was one of these things, and a lot of GMs that I knew were doing that as well. Um, and you'd go to and I go to conventions a lot and I'd be playing in games with GMs I didn't know and all these different systems. Um, and I just felt I just found um, in games that had some sort of standardized backstory piece of it, you just were able to jump in much faster. Even things like Traveler, while it doesn't necessarily have like the rich leading questions aspect to it, the like randomized character generation gave you a lot of backstory and ways to to connect with other characters and i just i found that that just enriched the experience so much more than i mean it's always so awkward when you sit down and you're probably most people are gaming with people they know probably (laughs) people who are really good friends and then you have to like pretend to not know each other for the first couple sessions of a game it's awkward yeah Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're talking about like the formalized background stuff it doesn't even take a lot. I mean, I noticed that was a mm-hmm. massive improvement in fifth edition D and D over like third yeah. edition. Just that they've they even acknowledge that stuff as big. Mm-hmm. This is something that I think people instinctively do, or maybe have learned to do. Uh, like we started our show as we kind of came out of the Fear the Boot forums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Fear the Boot from the very earliest days was talking about the group template, yeah. which is a, a way of kind of doing a thing where you sit down and say, how do we all know each other and how are we all connected? But it's a very, it was a very informal kind of process. And what I have found is when I'm setting up a game, I like that in my group of characters uh, that, you know, all the players are bringing to the table but the process takes like two weeks of session zeros and emails and Discord chats 
for everybody to kind of figure out where they all fit together. And condensing that into 90 minutes sounds really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it also is great because it, so as I said earlier, I'm a teacher. So asking questions that people don't expect is some of the, mm. one of the best ways to get creativity. Yeah. So when you're asking people to just sit and brainstorm, you're going to get some level of um, what they're comfortable with. So and, and what they know and kind of what they've already pre-planned. The, the neat thing about uh, these question systems that do this, however you decide to do it, is sometimes it asks you a question that you hadn't anticipated. So you end up learning more about your character than if someone hadn't asked that question. Right. So it just adds a, a whole new layer. Um, and also, like I said earlier, like the PBTA questions are great, but they don't really explain how the group is viewed in the world. Like, okay, like, like what have we done together? And it also doesn't necessarily help flesh out the world that you're playing in, whatever that is. Right. They are specifically about your relationship with other player characters. Yeah. And not, it, it's always a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's, it's not even a, how do I relate to these two people or the mm -hmm. rest of the group? It's always, how do I relate to, or what is, what do I think about this person? Well, and I do appreciate the whole group reputation thing because that winds up being really important in a lot of games. And it seems like almost nothing specifically touches on it. So it's like, <laughs> are we viewed as like these kind of shifty ne'er-do-wells? Are we really well-respected? Do people think our rates are too high? I mean, like none of that ever gets spelled out. And then you kind of wind up awkwardly trying to make it fit and play and maybe the... GM has an idea about that, and the players have a different one. And well, and it also seems to come out of nowhere if it's not explicit. You know, like, right? Oh, you know, you guys are hated here. That's weird. What did we do? We were, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And to to move towards the mechanics of Decima a little bit, one thing I do like about this. Well, there's many things I like about it, obviously. <laughs> but the the way this works is you've got cards that are either right side up or upside down. So basically turned one way or, you know, flipped 180 degrees. Um, and you that gives you a way to basically ask a positive version of a question or a negative version of a question. And I like the idea that that's up to whoever is playing it. Mm -hmm. That's fun to me because that's, you know, maybe it's like, well, it gives some control even over how you play a particular card into it. Absolutely. And that's one of the neat things about it, too. Um, like a lot of card games, there are so many variations on how you play, for example, like poker, like Texas Hold'em. There's so many different ways to play. Um, so there's actually a ton of different ways to play Decima as well. So, you know, there's some versions where uh, you get your card and you can choose. OK, you get to choose which side you answer. And then there's some where if you want to play this way, you, it's like, nope, you have to answer the question that's facing you so it's like and then that kind of like what i was saying earlier it kind of pushes the boundaries of okay well am i going to choose the question i'm comfortable with or am i going to like stretch myself and answer a question that maybe i hadn't considered before and then there's there's just a whole bunch of different variants on how how you can play it so yeah i i love the number of possibilities. That's one of the reasons I wanted two questions on each card. Mm -hmm. um, I love a game called For the Queen um, and so much fun. It's a card game. You, you go around and answer questions on cards um, and you can tell a narrative story together with it. But the, I played it a whole bunch and after a while, 
it, you can you, you start getting cards that you see a, a lot. And with Decima, since there's two car two questions on every card, like you would have to play thousands and thousands and that like I forget we did the math one time and it's like hundreds of thousands or two million times or something like that before you got like the exact same set of cards again. Like it's just such a huge number. So I, I love <laughs> that there's that much variance in it. Well, yeah. and while we're on that, let's let's talk about one of the things that's kind of nice about cards as opposed to like dice or a spinner or some of the other forms of randomization is not only are you getting something randomized, but you've only got one copy of everything, right? So <laughs> it's not like three people at the table are going to get the same question if it's one of those nights with dice or something. Right. <laughs> it's, it's always the fun of like, you know, rolling up a character. Oh, yeah, we all rolled the same thing that's um that's, maybe we're that's siblings yeah yeah it's, just, yeah it's just you end up because you're talking about relationships rather than individual characters i like you don't really run into that as much and that's pretty cool yeah i i also love that like as a card game it's super easy to carry the whole thing around like you can if there yes. is no book that comes with it, like all the directions are in the box with it. So you just carry one deck of cards and you can play this game wherever you are. Stick it in your backpack at a con and you can play it as a standalone game. It's not necessarily designed for that, but you can have a lot of fun doing it that way. But just like the portability it can be in your game bag and you never have to you never have to worry about lugging a giant book or something around. Yeah. Based on that actual play, it seems like if you try and just play it as a standalone game and never actually start a campaign based on what you create, your players will strangle you eventually. <laughs> uh, yes, I have had many a table that was like, okay, well, now you have to run this campaign because we've made this and it's amazing and we love it. And so uh, a lot of my playtesters were... Uh, very, very patient with the fact that I couldn't run that many campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me ask this. A lot of I have seen a couple of things that use playing cards before. Uh, and you went with a tarot card model for Decimo. Why was that? Uh, mostly because there's more cards. <laughs> there's 78 mm -hmm. cards in a tarot deck. Um, and it just kind of was... Uh, a way to kind of stand out and be a little bit different. Like I said, there's uh, a qu the Quiet Ear, which uses a regular deck of cards. Um, and there's also, there there are meanings behind tarot cards. I don't personally believe in uh, tarot as like an, a magical item um, or something that tells the future or anything like that. I know there are some people who do believe that. Personally, I tend to think of it more as like an inkblot test where they, they kind of help you think of, you know, think things through that are already on your mind um, or, or like prompt questions that sometimes a therapist or something will ask you kind of like, oh, OK, I hadn't thought of anything. Well, from the that other thing that's thing. kind of neat about them is they also imply certain narrative tropes, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So I, I was able to kind of look at the cards and be like, OK, and I had to do a lot of research because I actually when I started this process, didn't know very much about tarot. Um and, and look at what the cards are supposed to symbolize and what they mean. Um, and from that, I was able to kind of draw and make my questions very... Uh, I was able to vary my questions based on what the card meanings were. So it kind of kept me from repeating myself and going having too many cards of a certain type of question. Um, just as the person writing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of questions for the deck. 
So it just gave me a, like a little bit of guidance for that. Right. Um, there's also five different suits in a tarot deck, um, which yes. lent itself better to three different types of question cards. Um, so there's uh, the character connection questions, which are two suits of cards. There's the location questions, which are another two suits. And then the final suit, uh, the set of cards, is the the group questions. So it just split itself up a little bit more evenly than a regular uh, deck with four suits. Right, that makes sense, because then you have like one suit that's twice as big, or one set that's twice as big as the others. That's right. a little awkward mm-hmm. instead of yeah, two, two, exactly. and one. That makes sense. I got to say, I went down a rabbit hole of research because um, obviously, so Decima, uh, the the printed product is not a tarot deck, as I understand it. It's just question cards. Is that right? Uh, it is a tarot deck. It does have the pictures on it. Oh, okay. Um, so oh, it, okay. it, it has that, that kind of look to it, um, mm-hmm. but we're having custom art all made for it. Um, Very cool. That's it's kind of a shadow puppet style, so there's Ooh. not really Ooh, like a lot of um, like iconography that is generally um, matched with tarot in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because we kind of wanted to break off from that a little bit, because we're using uh, tarot in its like original function, which you're probably going to go into this in a minute because you've researched this a lot. Um, but tarot actually started as like a a card game. It um, did. Yeah, I went yeah. down the rabbit hole today. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and explain? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Greg so so wasn't even sticking out when he finished this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so I do want to kind of point this out because a lot of our our listeners may be going, mm, "Tarot, I don't know. Like that's got some occult connotations, doesn't it?" And it it does in America mm-hmm. because tarot or tarotchi is not a game that's played over here very much. But it certainly did not start off as anything occult. Um, the the whole history of it's kind of interesting. Yeah, so playing cards in general came over from probably from Mamluk, Egypt uh, in the late 1300s into Europe. Uh, the word tarot itself derives from the Italian word tarocci, which has a somewhat uncertain origin in and of itself. But there's, a, there's actually a couple of tarot historians out there. And uh, one of them, Andrea Vitali, found that the word tarok or taroch was apparently synonymous with fool or madman. <laughs> and the fool is the highest of the trump cards in most versions of the of the tarot game itself. So there you go. That That's what it seems to be coming from. Um, there, we actually have cards from 1440 CE. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are these beautiful hand-painted cards and they're fifth, they're pieced together from about 15 different decks. Uh, they're the Visconti Svorsa Tarot, for those who want to look that up. Uh, and they really are quite lovely. Um, and all they are is just what were standard playing cards for the time with the four suits, the wands, cups. Oh, goodness, I'm blanking out on the other two. Sword? Swords and... There's, uh, coins. Coins, coins. Yes. that was it. Ah, we got there. Uh, wands, cups, swords, and coins. And then they... But the guy who commissioned the decks also asked for a fifth suit because they were made for a game that's basically kind of like bridge. Yeah. Uh, in the Italian name of it is Triomphi. Uh, in English, that's Triumph. And the decks were called Carta di Triomphi, Triumph cards. Those additional cards became known as the Triumphies. And that's where we get the word Trump from, <laughs> which is neat. I, I learned a thing today. It's exciting. <laughs> and then 
there's a whole thing where like a different, very similar game was also called Triumphy, but it didn't use the fifth suit of Trump cards. And then the older game took on the name Tarochi and it's a whole thing. We get the tarot via the French tarot, T-A-R-A-U-X. And we have that written down as early as 1505. Um, We actually don't have any complete set of rules until 1637, though. Uh, And interestingly, that the rule set was commissioned a print a print run was commissioned of tarot rules by a French abbot named Michel de Merol, uh, which I think is neat. Did I get that horribly um, wrong? No. Correct is French, say, Jenny. Say it again. Say it again. I don't dare. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Michel de Merol. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I Michel feel judged. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an accent thing, not a pronunciation thing, if okay. that makes sense. I took German. <laughs> yeah, like you're doing great for someone with a Germanic language base. <laughs> yeah, oof. Um, anyway, th- these cards are actually still used today. There's regional var- variants of Tarochi, Tarot, uh, all over Europe. And th- what's, what's neat about it is they all have slightly different rules, kind of depending on the country and region, <laughs> to the point where tarot historians have actually had to classify tarot into like three different categories of games it's kind of great and hilarious <laughs> now the oh, i mean think about how how many different uh games are played with standard like bicycle playing cards you oh, leave I know, people I know. with a deck of cards and enough free time they're gonna come know, up with different stuff but it's like you know variants of bridge is kind of right. the, the level of, of detail or poker or you know well yeah Yeah. well especially when you're living in a time where printed things are very expensive so most people are making their own cards Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you end up with uh you know i i I did a bunch of research on this too before i started like planning out decima like they have like wildly different like suits and different things like you can find so many different variations just because people in different regions like made it made the game a little bit different or they lost Mm -hmm. some cards so they make some to replace it or whatever it's really really fascinating oh yeah (laughs) this deck has a ukulele suit what's up with that (laughs) (laughs) now that's a suit i'd like to play (laughs) fair same all right um so the the whole tarot and mysticism thing the association between those two doesn't actually appear for about three centuries after that 1440 point i talked about mm-hmm. uh antoine court de gabelin antoine court de gabelin de, de gabelin de gabelin that's the best i'm going to be able to do i apologize to all of our french-speaking <laughs> listeners out there and jenny in particular um this was a huguenot rationalist uh, influential supporter of American independence in France in the 1770s, friend of Benjamin Franklin, who's an economist, and one of Europe's earliest linguists and linguistic researchers. Mm-hmm. Fascinating guy. He also held as his great project the reconstruction of the high primeval civilization that he believed classical and Renaissance art evoked as the golden age of mankind. And he thought this civilization was a worldwide civilization that was advanced and enlightened well beyond modern ideas, modern being, you know, 1700s, (laughs) late 1700s, right? Mm -hmm. But of his time. And so he wrote about that and he wrote volumes and volumes of it that were immensely popular in his time. The king of France, King Louis XVI, was the lead subscriber whenever a new volume was published. That you you would get it published and then they would be sent out to all of the subscribers of his works. 
his writings are despite being a rationalist his writings are the wellspring from which a great deal of our modern occultism actually flows which is weirdly ironic and kind of delights <laughs> me in a way but 1781 he publishes i think the eighth volume of this massive continuing work and he had looked at a tarot deck and apparently that was all the research he wanted to do <laughs> because he then claimed that the tarot deck was invented by the priests of ancient egypt who had distilled the book of thoth into its images <laughs> These had then been brought to Rome where their secret history was known to the popes and the popes during the Avignon papacies of the 14th century had introduced tarot to France. At no point did he give any evidence for this and he claimed that literally just by looking at it, he immediately understood its Egyptian connections. Hmm. Seems legit. Yeah, seems legit. Uh, bear in <laughs> mind, this is just about the same time that uh, French uh, linguists are beginning to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs. So this this sounds like that guy who legit in his academic paper cited as an actual citation. This was revealed to me in a dream. You're not wrong. <laughs> it's very similar. <laughs> it's kind of great. So he also appends uh, in this volume an essay uh, that gives suggestions for using the tarot deck as a form of divination. Uh, cartomancy is the mm -hmm. term, by the way, for those wondering about that, using cards to do divination. And then two years later, a well-known fortune teller named Atelia. Thank you. I, I'm assuming that's French because this I, is sounding very 1700s French. I'm assuming it's Atelia. It might be. Atelier. It is. No, it's, it's got to be Atelier. It's got to be is, It is. I, I did see the real name of the guy. I didn't write it down, but it's it's very French. Mm -hmm. um, but that. But Atelier published a guide to tarot cartomancy two years after uh, De Gibelin. Now, Gibelin also included in this volume an essay by the Comte de Melet, which claimed that the tarot decks twenty-one trump cards plus the fool card were mystically connected with. The 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And here we get into Kabbalism. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> and that connection was actually popularized by another French author, Eliphas Levi, who was an occultist and ceremonial magician who did that Kabbalistic connection. He was big into Kabbalah. Uh, his, he was French and then transliterated his name into Hebrew, and that's where his Eliphas Levi came from, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a, another Belle Epoque occultist named Papus, one of the relatively famous occultists, who published a relatively popular book in 1889 called The Tarot of the Bohemians. And this book claimed that tarot cards were an invention of the Roma. At the time, the Roma were believed to have originated in Egypt by the rest of Europe, and ancient Egypt's mystical allure was just too much for Papus to resist. Also, everybody believed that Egypt was the cradle of civilization, or at least European civilization at the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain irony here in that they are completely wrong about the Roma, but the playing cards, like playing cards as a thing, probably did originate in Egypt. Mm -hmm. But this is where that idea of the Roma fortune teller using the tarot for divination actually comes from, is Papus. Yeah. So, TLDR, um, this is a card game, Napoleonic Mystics, Hold My Tea. 
Yeah. And, you know, as with everything, uh, you know, that's a little bit silly, Bellapoc is pretty close to Victorian, and you can probably, um, we can kind of bl- blame the Victorians by proxy. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a goal of blaming the Victorians for everything I can, and this is the, the closest it's I can It's not a difficult goal to achieve. I mean, no. uh, you don't usually have to do a ton of work to pull that off. No. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one last quick note on this. Various British and American mystical groups played up the tarot-based magic as part of their whole shtick. You know, this this was kind of turn of the 20th century era here. And then a lot of them created specific illustrations for that Trump suit to suit their practices. And that's where the definition of these as the, quote, major arcana actually comes from is replacing the symbolism on those Mm -hmm. Uh, the original symbolism honestly came from carnival uh descriptions and like you know carnival costumes and puppetry and that sort of thing and then of course everybody's like well let's let's put in weird theosophical illustrations and whatever right basically anything can be a cult if you try hard enough and invent a lot of nonsense like basically i drink a lot of tea but I'm not using the tea leaves for tea leaf divination. Yeah, right. Exactly. So right. Yeah. TLDR, don't worry about it, but also it's neat. And I got to go, I got to research today and I'm happy about that. <laughs> right. Well, it also shows how creative people can be when they want to make money off of something. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's true. Well, whether, whether that's making it into divination or just a really useful tool for a role-playing game for that matter. Exactly. Yes. Also, yeah. don't trust anything with citation needed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, if if there are, you know, if, if the whole thing makes it uncomfortable for you, Decima still works as long as you just have like, you know, 78 things to draw from. You can make a perfectly blank uh, set of 78 cards on, you know, Tabletop Simulator or something and just use that. It works Absolutely. fine. Yeah. yeah or the, Rule 20. Yeah. The PDF um, actually comes with charts. Um, and it does have the card names there, but there are none of the images on the PDF. Um, so you can always uh, uh, get that and then like uh, adjust it as you will. Pick out just the questions you want to answer. Like there's so many different things to do. Swap out um, questions if you want to, too. That was something else that, you know, like maybe we were doing something that uses something, some very specific piece of technology. And we want to reference that a little bit somehow. Yeah, or? yeah. absolutely. Um, and the whole thing of, you know, make it work for you and, you know, be comfortable and be safe at the table leads me into something else that I really wanted to talk about at Decima. Mm-hmm. I have a copy of Microscope and I like it. But mm-hmm. one of the things that really stands out to me about Decima is that you've actually incorporated the X card mechanic and safety mechanics into the gameplay right from the get go. Mm-hmm. And I um, love I- that because it teaches people before the game begins that the X card is okay to use. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge believer um, in safety at the table. Um, I have a whole list of different safety tools on my gaming website, goldenlassogamescom slash tools, because um, there's, you know, the consent flower, there's lines and veils, there's the X card. There's like so many things that people have developed to make gaming safe. Um, and as someone who plays at conventions a lot, I really appreciate that because sometimes you're not at a table where people like with know you and know kind of where your boundaries are. Um, and yeah, I think it's very important actually using the X card because I've had some people who kind of 
balked at that idea and they're like, this is a very serious thing. It shouldn't be part of the mechanics. Um, but I find that it normalizes it. So if you get a card and you don't like the question, you can tap the X card and you can just put it down and draw another one of the same type. Um, and nobody comments on it. So if, like, so it's not a, a thing. So if you, you know, and also it works if someone else is collaboratively creating a world with you and they do something that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, you should already kind of feel like, okay, the X card is normalized. It's fine to use. So it's like, okay, I want this NPC to be named, you know, Jonathan. And you're like, well, Jonathan's my dad name that my dad's name. That's a little weird. Like X that out. It, it doesn't have to just be for like, like really serious traumatic things. Like it should be anything that it all detracts from your fun. Yeah, so this I was, was something that we brought up in the, the episode that we did on safety techniques a while ago is a lot of the time, like the, the biggest benefit that you get out of using safety techniques well is not that you stave off trauma. I mean, you're obviously looking to do that too, but the biggest benefit a lot of the time is just a lot of the stuff that's just kind of weird and awkward and irritating gets filtered out. Right. Mm -hmm. It also really just makes people feel comfortable that it's even there, even if it doesn't get used. Like, just its mere presence makes people feel more able to be themselves, able to, like, to enter these characters more and roleplay more freely. So it just benefits just the the level of your game as a whole just to have them there well, i can speak to that of, personally on yeah. that one because um my daughter has some pretty serious anxiety issues and we've mm -hmm. done some no thank you evil games with her mm -hmm. she's never used the namesake mechanic of no thank you evil where you say no thank you evil and the bad thing goes away mm -hmm. but she is obviously more comfortable having it there mm -hmm. and it's great i like having that same escape where it's just you know it's there if i need it it's yeah, cool. and safety tools that nobody is comfortable enough to use might as well not be there. You have right. to be comfortable with them for them to be worth anything. And I do think there's a lot of value in introducing it in the game creation, the group templating process, because I think we're we're starting collectively as a hobby to get more used to the idea that we need safety tools at the table when we're playing because somebody could do something horrible or they introduce something horrible. But in the initial planning phase, that vulnerability is there just as much. And I think it's sometimes difficult to think of that. And maybe because game planning has so traditionally been one person's job, mm -hmm. the GM says, here's the, here's what I'm running. But when it, when it's collaborative, you have to know each other's boundaries and have a, a way of saying, nope, too far. Absolutely. I think it's also becoming more important as the hobby is becoming more diverse. Yes, of course. Um, like when I started going to conventions 11, 12 years ago, um, there weren't very many women there. And I had some like experiences that they didn't mean to make them bad experiences. It just literally never occurred to them that the storyline they'd created might make a woman uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then it's, it, you know, there's so many different types of people gaming and with, you know, streams and sh different shows bringing it to the masses on, you know, Twitch and YouTube and podcasting becoming this huge thing that is so available now to everyone via smartphones and all these things. It's just exploded the hobby. Um, so we just need to be so much more aware that, the thing that we plan out, and even if we're like 
so well-intentioned and we don't mean to hurt anyone. We're actually working not to there. We all have blind spots based on our own background. So you could very easily put something in a game that is completely unintentionally um, abrasive for someone. So Mm -hmm. having those tools there just gives them a way to handle that situation that isn't, you know, like blowing up the game that isn't them feeling like, Oh, now I'm going to mess things up if I say something, even though I'm feeling uncomfortable. So it's, it's just such a great tool. Yeah. Everything. I, I, I'll use one example that I've used before, but um, there was one time at a con game where it was a pugmire and somebody went after an anthropomorphic cat just a few months after my wife and I had lost our beloved cat mm. uh, at the time. And I could not handle it. I didn't just, yeah. you know, I mean, I tilted at the table and just about got up and walked away. And there was a whole thing there. And it's like, if there had just been an X card in the middle, I would have been like, nope, lost cat recently. Let's do something else. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. yeah, or even just no, let's do something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I, one of the things I love about the X card is you don't have to explain it. You are never required to right. explain mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, exactly. but this is me. You know I would have explained it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Sure. And that's fine. Yeah, I had an experience um, that I, I think like it was sort of before this recent or I guess it's not recent, but the last year, years of, of safety tools, um, I was playing in a game at a convention. It was actually one of my best friends running the game. Um, and I had had a really traumatic experience at work um, that week where I, you know, I teach at a school and we had a student and her mother were hit by a car in front of the school. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, so the mother had passed away. I had been the one who responded. So I like went to the hospital with the little girl. I sat with her all day. Um, so it was like this really traumatic thing. And I was like, okay, so I'd had the con that weekend and I was just not, I hadn't really talked to anybody about it. I didn't want to talk about it. Um, and I sat down and I don't know why I, I, I had signed up weeks before for a grim game, which when I sat, yeah, I didn't think about it. Like as dumb as that sounds, like I, I sat down for the game. I was excited to play with my friends and it just didn't really occur to me until we started playing that what I was sitting down for. And I just like, like, and I had no way, especially at a con game where like, there's all these strangers at the table, even though I knew the GM and it, there was just one moment where like, I was fine. It was fine. And then this little girl walks in and starts crying for her mommy who's like, had been taken or something. And Mm -hmm. I just like lost Mm -hmm. it. And I just like, it was so hard. And, um, and I'm not even sure that like that level of emotion like would have been handled by a safety tool, but I feel like if there had been something, if there'd been a little bit like some, like you were talking about a moment ago, like where there's a, like a little bit of a discussion pregame or like all these things that are starting to become so commonplace, like that situation could have been avoided. Um, like I probably would have still had a hard weekend, but like all the people at the table who were like, uh, why, why did she run out of the room crying? Like what, what happened? Like that, like it just helps everyone else handle everything too. Like, cause it's hard for other people at the table too, when they're, you know, when someone's having, uh, an emotional, like in real life, emotional reaction to things and there's not a way to handle it. Um, and the, and these safety tools give you a way to handle it in a way that also helps everyone else at the table. It's not just for the person who's struggling. Yeah, because, I mean, nobody else is having fun if somebody melts down, you know? Right. It's like, you know, that that the incident that you talked about or the one I talked about, pretty much everybody else at the table was probably like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, what happened, you know? Well, or you somebody have the person who's sitting there. and is IRL, you know? Yeah. 
Or you have the person who's sitting there and obviously struggling, obviously not having fun, but not, but if there's not a safety tool in place for them to handle that, everyone else is probably noticing. They don't know whether they should ask. They don't know, should we stop? We don't know if it's something in the game that's upsetting them or something else that's upsetting them. So having safety tools in place that that player can use to communicate what, you know, why they're struggling like relieves a lot of the pressure at the table too because you know it's 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 always hard like I've I've sat at a table with someone and you know and they're upset and I'm like okay well I know she's going through a breakup with her boyfriend but there's also this thing that's happening in the game do I stop the game and ask her do I shoot her a text quietly like to see which one is upsetting her because mm-hmm. you know maybe she maybe she's upset about the breakup and this is actually helping or maybe she's upset about what's in the game and we need to stop it like it's hard to tell so these safety tools like giving that communication is helpful to that person and everyone else there too just that yeah. communication piece is so important yeah and I, I really do appreciate it as a gm even if i have to back off of things just knowing immediately and making a change yeah helps so much yeah, it's great. Yeah, so it's just to kind of bring it full circle. It's it's great that it's integrated into um, Decima kind of from the beginning. And also, honestly, it's nice that there's a nice big fat like tarot sized X card that you can just throw in the middle of the table for regular play when you're done, too. Yeah, that's pretty useful yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And on the back of it, it describes how to use it. So um, I actually I've had a couple uh, friends who run a convention nearby. They're like, can we just like get a bunch of those printed and we can just leave them on all the tables for all the, the games? And I was like, sure. That's, here's the artwork. Oh, Here man. you go. Just, so, yeah. I, I would actually kind of love to just get a um, like a game store pack of those to just like like put out at a game store, just take as needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great suggestion. I'll write that down. (laughs) Honestly, that would even be a good thing to do with just like Vistaprint or something. Just make a bunch of them as business cards. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The equivalent of like something that goes in a business card holder is just, you know, Mm -hmm. an X card for for your game table as an advertisement. Absolutely. Oh, man. All right. I I should stop giving (laughs) ideas away. Shoot. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about that for half. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. That was it. <laughs> oh, I was uh, happy. Jax was thinking about doing that a while ago, but we were like, "Well, I don't." Does that seem like a like a jerk move to like have an X card with an ad on the other side? I'm not sure. So we haven't like pulled the trigger on that yet. But if you do, you, you do it. Let us know. Oh uh, well, no, response. I'll, it would be very on brand for us. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to figure out who That's it's on true. brand for. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. One other thing I kind of wanted to touch on as we wrap this discussion up, mm-hmm. we. I was corrected right at the, the get. I was like, oh, there's a bunch of these. No, turns out there's not. Um, why aren't there a lot of these tools? I th- That's a great question. I have no idea. <laughs> I think it's partly because we were sort of talking about, we were sort of skirting the issue, safety mechanics, and in general, this type of hyper-collaboration within games and seeing it as a less GM-centric thing is still relatively new to the hobby. This hobby has been going on since the 70s, and the vast majority of that time still, although that time is now gradually becoming a much more even ratio, was spent dungeon crawling and in a competitive scenario. We are Mm. much more often seeing games 
not even just role-playing games, any kind of game as a collaborative effort rather than a competitive effort. Yeah, I mean, the, the rise of cooperative board games like Pandemic and stuff is a that, recent yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, and even video games too. Um, so I think this is a natural progression from that. I think we will be seeing more of these things in the future, but as of right now, uh, we've got Decima, Microsoft, Microscope Kingdom, uh, The Quiet Year, and The Deep Forest, and Dawn of Worlds. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's probably some others around, but... Oh, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. And if there are, tell us, please. Yeah, we yeah. want to know about uh, One other thing that I can't believe we didn't ask earlier because we started wandering around the conversation, and I would really want to get Kimmy on the record on. <laughs> As somebody who's designed one of these things and obviously has, you know, has spent a bunch of time using them and has really, you know, been able to experience how this kind of thing is beneficial because you know i mean i'm sure there's at least somebody who's listening to this and it's like yeah but i'm the gm i you know that stuff is my job what what are the advantages of doing this with your whole group instead of just one person and let's leave labor saving to the side because that's the (laughs) obvious one like one person doesn't have to do all of this Mm -hmm. what are the other advantages to this because i know there are some i've experienced some myself but you designed a product that does this so yeah Um, I find, I think the best example, uh, is when I did this for a wild west game that I was, that I was running. Um, so we, you know, designed the town together and all these things. And the first session, it was like very early on in the process too. Like Decima was like, it was, it was a little, uh, uh, ad hoc to say the least. It was put together with like stickers and like a deck I'd bought on, Amazon for five dollars and uh, everything is written. But um, I mean, I happen to thing- know that Wizards <laughs> Wizards of the Coast R and D, when designing Magic Card, uses stickers and old Magic cards. So, oh right, very good. <laughs> uh, with the best, then yeah, exactly. Um, but it was like we did it, and it was great, and everyone had a lot of buy-in. Um, there were things that got added to the town that were amazing that I never would have thought of. But it really clicked for me how valuable it was when we played our first session. And the the players were playing characters who had lived in this town for a number of years. And I realized how little I was having to explain or talk during that first session. We were able to just get into the role playing. Because, you know, usually for a first session, they're like, okay, I'm going to go see the banker. Where's the bank? You know, but because we've done this and developed it together, they knew where the bank was. They knew who, you know, the the teller behind the, the counter was at the bank because um, they had all created it, too. So they th- knew as much about this town as their characters who had lived there for years did. And it was just kind of this magical thing of they were able to seamlessly, suddenly interact with this town that we'd made in a way that most people weren't wouldn't be able to till many 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 sessions into a campaign. So it um, sounds like it jumps you like to this that sweet spot in the middle of a game where you already you've got like history with the world from the first session. We exactly. Have, we have talked about setting crunch before. Mm-hmm. And a lot of games is you know the GM comes up with a setting, comes up with a story and then has to teach all of that to the other players so that they can play believable characters. Yeah. And that's a lot to absorb all at once. We even had that same problem with the Powered by the Apocalypse module that I started. The first session was, 
hey guys, here's a fire hose of a town. Learn mm-hmm. as much as you can as fast as you can because you're going to be seeing these NPCs like over and over again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, getting over that hump and make and making it all collaborative sounds like it's not just a load off the GM's back. It's a cognitive load off the players as well. Absolutely. And you have to keep in mind as the GM that it doesn't limit your plans either, because like whatever you create with Decima, you can always add on to as the GM. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, oh, I can only use the things you made. No, that's just a, a jumping off point. So like I recently I started running a masks campaign. Um, so there's a lot of information already out there about like the setting of masks, which is generally a city called Halcyon City. But you can use we use Decima and we played Decima to start that campaign. And it just added so much rich- richness that wasn't necessarily necessarily involved or included in the books that magpies put out. So like the kid, the, the they made their high school that they go to and just got really specific with their high school and what teachers were there and things like that. And so it was great too, because it also gives them NPCs that are kind of cornerstones for them that they either like or dislike or have some history with, which is right. great. You don't have to be like, this is your enemy or this is probably going to be, uh, your rival or things like that, they get to kind of come up with it, which also increases their emotional investment and kind of their um, enthusiasm for it. Well, and it, okay, so it also sounds like it, it does two additional things. It takes something that's often just a lot of like tedious work, but is necessary and makes it fun, which is a big recommendation right away. And <laughs> second, it gives you more complicated, like and complex relationships where you can have kind of like, frenemies and stuff in your setting instead of just, you know, you know this is the guy that we want to put a bullet in. You, you know? actually just yeah. captured something really interesting. I struggle sometimes to come up with both ends of a relationship in mm-hmm. when I'm designing a, a world. Like, I can come up with one person and then, like, what are they, how are they connected to the rest of the setting? I don't mm-hmm. know. When you have two people working on it, that, or multiple, multiple people working on it, it gets easier because... Oh, well, you know, I know how this person will react and you've told me how this person reacts. And we kind of actually have relationship dynamics happening at the table as we invent characters and locations and everything else. Yeah, exactly. So you're like, OK, I'm we came up with um, the saloon owner um, and then someone else. And but it's like, OK, they own the saloon. But someone else is later like uh, I hurt, you know, they get a card. It's like. Um, I hurt someone, but they don't know it was me. Well, then you can t- – maybe it was the saloon owner. Like there's all these like connections, again, like like a web that, that kind of end up generally overlapping. And maybe you grab an idea that happened earlier and you're like, oh, what if that is also what was the catalyst for this? Um, and it, it's pretty amazing how it kind of dominoes sometimes into these very complex backstories that include, you know, a bunch of the players and some PCs or, or and some NPCs and things like that. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was actually really cool to watch that actual play, um, which will be linked in the show notes, by the way, okay. the, of that that uh, generation ship with like that weird kind of diesel punk aesthetic to it. And it's like at the beginning, it's like, yeah, we've got some raw character concepts. And at the end, everybody was like, so when are we starting this? Yeah. So. <laughs> 
That was a great one. It's uh, it's always neat to, uh, you know, we've tried so many things. I haven't found anything yet that didn't work because um, that was one of the things we've been beta testing for over a year now. So I started with what I thought were very generic questions. And I very, very quickly realized that a lot of them weren't. A lot of them were like, well, this doesn't make sense if you're not playing in a fantasy setting or this doesn't work if you're not in a city. So it's like through like draft after draft, we've come up with very interesting questions that are 99.9% um, setting generic. Um, and then again, you know, that's when the X card comes into play. If you're like, oh, we already answered that with when we made up the story about this, or, um, you know, this doesn't really fit the setting we've done, or this doesn't really fit my character, just exit out and get a new card. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, kind of going back to that part of the discussion, those things are useful for things other than just keeping people from getting upset, you know, like Absolutely. Yeah. this is redundant is a perfectly good reason <laughs> to get rid of something. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have friends who played it so many, I, I've inflicted a lot of this on my friends <laughs> who've played it so many times. They actually have like some favorite cards sometimes. So they're just like, oh, this is a boring card. I want a different one. So <laughs> <laughs> they just like want, want something a little more complicated, a little better. Yeah, for like whatever that individual person's version of better would be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can I also say this kind of tool is one of my favorite kinds of rut buster. Mm. Like I growing up in the games that I did, it was very like it was very Dragonlance. Mm. It, it was it was very set in a very specific uh, frame that the GM knew. And that was usually Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, the the most base of like basic intro-level D&D settings. And I say intro-level, I, I, I mean like accessible by pretty much anybody with access to a gaming store. Mm -hmm. um, and so this kind of tool... Um, not just Decima, but like Microscope and and all the the other ones um, are a really great way, especially in the collaborative sense, to bust a GM out of a, a setting or um, a, a plot rut. Um, I feel like it would also be good for cracking really players out of PC ruts, too. I mean, that too. like, yeah. you know, as somebody who has played probably enough like lawful and neutral good clerics to populate a small <laughs> town like it's that can be valuable from the pc side too mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and i um i've also had people um because we put the beta test out and it was available online for a really long time we had people from all over the world testing it out which was great um, we had a lot, some people come up with things that I never really thought about, but like after a, a campaign that had a break for a while because just life got in the way, um, people would come back and like do one more card each to kind of just kind of warm up and get back into the campaign. Hmm. Um, kind of like what uh, love letters are sometimes used for, what they hmm. term love letters for PBTA games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so it, it's got a bunch of different kind of interesting uses to kind of just get you know, your creative juices flowing. That kind of feeds back into our last episode when we were talking about like older and retired characters coming back. You could probably take somebody who's been out of, you know, the adventuring life, however that's defined in whatever setting you're in and give them a few cards and be like, so how'd your retirement affect you? Let's find <laughs> yeah. out, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, it, it's an interesting way to do a time skip. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else on this? Yeah. Is there anything that you'd particularly like to tell us about that we didn't think to ask or? Well, one of the other features of Decima, did I talk about leaving cards out already? No, no, I don't think you not did. Really, okay. no. Not really. Okay. No. Sorry. It's, after this conversation, like this long, I'm like, wait, did I say that? Um, one of the cool things about it as well is you can take out certain aspects of the game if you don't need it. So if you are running an adventure in, um, you know, Waterdeep, for example, and you've got your adventure path and you've got your story and you, you don't really need to flesh out Waterdeep necessarily. I mean, you could. There's always cool things you can do with it. But, you know, if you're like, oh, I want to press for time, you can just pull out the suits of the the deck that work with the locations. And they actually have different colors on the back, so it's really easy to tell which cards are those. Um, So you just pull out the blue cards, and then you just have your character connection cards and your group dynamics cards. Or flip that around. If you are playing PBTA, for example, Masks has some amazing character connection questions um, that are actually tied in with the mechanics. So you don't really want to mess with them too much, especially if you're playing like the bowl playbook. Um, so you can just leave out the red cards, which are the character connection cards, you know, make your location and also figure out the group dynamics. So it's a very flexible system. So you can pick and choose what aspects you want to add to your campaign um, and what things you don't necessarily need to do. Makes sense. Cool. Well, on that note, I think we need to wrap this up. But, Kimmy, it's been awesome having you on. Yeah, I'm excited about this. And I hope that the Kickstarter goes well. Once again, for those who maybe want to back this on Kickstarter and you know get their, their hands on a copy of Decima, where can they go for that? Uh, go to goldenlassogames.com slash Kickstarter, and that redirects right to the, the Kickstarter page because the Kickstarter URLs are kind of long. <laughs> <laughs> they are extremely long, yes. But, of course, you can, I'm sure, go to Kickstarter itself and search for Golden Lasso Games or Decima, D-E-C-U-M-A. Yes. And it will also be it. in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yay. It will be in the show notes, and I'm sure we'll tweet about it as well. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been – I just I'm, I'm excited, and this is just something that I, I've always sort of – had in the back of my mind, I should try one of these things. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to, because my Sunday vampire game has sort of collapsed into, I don't know how to run vampire, help, help, I'm drowning. And <laughs> we're that g- group is kind of looking for something else to do. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of thinking monster of the week. Ooh. And we all kind of want to try something like Decima to get us started. So I might mm-hmm. just be like, hey, folks, you... Uh, you want to try this? Well, you, <laughs> awesome. Th- let's see how this goes. So, yeah, yeah that, that should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, the, the game's actually designed to be cards, because like for the Queen or th- something like that, um, or a Quiet Year, if you have the actual deck of Quiet Year cards, it's much more elegant to just grab a card, flip it over, read the question. Oh, yeah. Um, but the PDF is there, and so it's a little more clunky if you, like, flip over the card and then, like, look on the the chart what it what the question is but it still works great we've had people doing it for over a year so uh, you'll uh, be in good company quick quick follow-up speaking of that because i'm <laughs> sure this would be very relevant to me for instance do you have any plans to maybe as a stretch goal or something integrate these into things like tabletop simulator or roll 20 
Uh, I have a version in Tabletop Simulator already that's being tested. Um, so that's very exciting. And then, Sweet. yeah, I, I was looking over Roll20 today, too. I think those that'll be a stretch goal. I'm still trying to figure out exactly how that works with Roll20. But I would love because like for the queen is available on their marketplace. I would love for Decimo to be on there. So that would be because fantastic. Yeah, we would I live on too. the far edge of nowhere and game with people who live hundreds or thousands of miles away most of the time. Yeah. So <laughs> what I've been doing actually is uh, I've been dealing cards for them and sending them pictures of their hand. So nice. okay. yeah, that too. That worked, that's worked really well because I've done a couple um, APs with people who are um, who are remote from me. And that seems to work pretty well. But yeah, always the, the like uh, tabletop simulator is actually really amazing, and the art looks really cool in it. Mm. Um, so part of the the Kickstarter that we're raising money for is um, like the custom art. Like I said, right now I just have like a, a kind of a generic uh, a deck that I bought the images for. I don't have the rights to sell it commercially. Commercially, mm-hmm. um, so I'm having my friend Samantha, who's an incredible artist. She's worked, um, you know, professionally for years. She's done stuff for Blizzard, DC Comics like this whole laundry list of amazing companies. And she's my friend, so she's nice enough to do it for a very reasonable price for me. But that's mostly what the Kickstarter is for, is to fund the printing of the cards, but also that she can do this really cool kind of shadow puppet style of art that is that is just really awesome. Kind of less, because um, like we were talking earlier about tarot art, like it's usually very specific. Right. Um, it looks very fantasy or it looks very, you know, whatever it is. Astrological um, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Mythological Egyptian, like you can buy a King Arthur deck or whatever. So um, it's hard to like, you know, you're using, oh, here I have a King Arthur tarot deck, but I'm making a generation ship in space. So I wanted mm. something that was uh, kind of generic that you can look at it and be like, oh, OK, it's just kind of like a, a line figure with a cool background behind it. So you can kind of. Like just, just it doesn't pull you out of trying to create something else. It's just kind of generic there. Yeah, that makes sense. That's yeah. good. I, and I, I like the idea of shadow puppet style. Like that just seems perfect. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully people like it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Very cool. Well, thank you again. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, introduce us to this game, and also just kind of talk about the the theory of this sort of pregame tool in general. Uh, you know, that we always appreciate people taking the time to kind of discuss stuff with us, which is great. Yeah. I love discussing stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, if you are a new listener to the show and you want to follow us, we are, as I mentioned at the, towards the top of the show on Spotify, but we are also at stgcast.org. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Saving the Game. And we're on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and RPG Podcasts and a bunch of other places, Podchaser, you name it. We're, we're out there as best we can. So if you want to listen to past episodes, you can absolutely do that through any means you want. But if you go to our website, you can also find our Discord, at, which is full of wonderful people who are currently having a all sorts of conversations right now. I'm watching them go by and had to mute because it was too distracting. We have uh, blog posts from Peter. We have all sorts of good stuff out there. So definitely go out to our website. Take a look at that. And from all of us here at Saving the Game and Golden Lasso Games, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. Bye. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, 
or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.